We're going to continue this morning in the Word of God. I know I've been saying it for a while, right? We, we, we've been in Mark, man, for a long time, right? Like the Gospel of Mark, we've been studying through it, uh, teaching, preaching through it. I'm super excited to get back into it. We are at the halfway point in the Gospel of Mark, literally the halfway, the way they divide the books, but also the halfway point. We talked about that, about this kind of high point moment. And you'll see so many ways that this was a great time to stop and, you know, God foresaw we'd be at Easter. And we're going to jump back into the Word now and kind of continue to expound upon what the Scriptures say about Jesus' ministry. But before we jump into it, I want to give you a quick kind of like bringing everyone up to speed on what's happened. Many of you know, right, already if you're thinking about the Gospel of Mark, where we are, but it's helpful to always be reminded of our context when we're studying the Scriptures. I just want to impress upon you the importance of understanding that. A lot of times, anyone can do this, by the way, we, and we, we might even find some verses today that we have a tendency to pull out of context, but when you put them back in, they, it changes everything about that verse. And so we got to be careful to read Scriptures in context or let Scripture interpret Scripture as the Word encourages us to do. But this morning I want to kind of bring us up to speed a little bit on where we are. So we know that, there, that the Gospel of Mark starts like with Jesus' baptism essentially. And, and he enters into this ministry and he's baptized. He begins to proclaim the kingdom of God is near, right, to the people. And then he does this crazy thing. He invites people to follow him. And I know there's St. Paul and St. Peter and St., you know, Ignatius or whoever else the saints are these days, right? But it's, don't miss this. It's ordinary people following Jesus, I hope we never put the saints on such a high pedestal that, that we, can't, we, we think that we are not that kind of worker. Because if you are called by God, if you are in, in given the spirit of God, you are that kind of worker in the kingdom of God. Don't miss it. We, we make statues and buildings and we miss the point. It's ordinary people he calls to follow him. And so really up to this point, it's all been about people following Jesus. Now as they followed him, they started to see some peculiar things in his, in his ministry. Like he spoke as one who had authority. You, you know that, right? He didn't just say, well, I think this could be how it is. He said, this is how it is. And people began to listen differently to Jesus. As a matter of fact, when he would show up, he would say things that were absolutely blasphemous, you might say, like your sins are forgiven. And people say, well, who can uh, uh, forgive sins but God alone, right? They begin to ask these hard questions. And, and then to prove this, he begins to do even more radical uh, physical things that even today you and I would be stunned if we saw, like healing people of disease or like commanding the weather. This is all in building up to this moment in Mark where I'm, I'm, I've been making the case for you, with you that, that this is the point of Jesus' coming to earth. He begins to turn his face towards his true purpose. So many of us would spend our time celebrating all of those things. He, he called ordinary people and he did all this stuff and he, he could command, he did miracles, right? The miracle worker, he, he fed thousands of people from very little food and we would be so caught up in that we would miss, uh, miss the point of his ministry. And in the middle of all this, he, he, he's, he's got these groups of people, he's got crowds of people, he's got these, these intimate people he's hanging out with, and then in that intimacy, one of those people, you remember his name is Peter, right, says, I think you're the Christ. And when he says, who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, I, I, I say you're the Christ. A after some debate amongst who he might, about who he might be. And that's almost where we left off. I know we made it that that moment of confessing him as Messiah, as, as the fulfillment of all the prophecy, by the way, of all time, in that moment we could say, well, that's the point, and it is, but I want you to see one more thing that 
begins to tip that teeter off the other way toward Jerusalem and the cross and what must come to be. And it's this, as soon as, as, soon as Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus says, the Son of Man must go suffer and die and be raised in three days. He says that almost immediately upon Peter calling him the Christ. You remember Peter's so shocked by that that he says, no way. And you remember Jesus is so offended by that, he says, get behind me, Satan. And then the last part of chapter 8 in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you something. This discipleship, this learning from me as your rabbi, as your, as your teacher, as you, as you recognize me as Messiah, as Christ, is going to cost you something, so get ready. It's going to be expensive. And that's where we pick up today in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I'm going to invite you to turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 9. I think it's on page 706 in the Bibles at the end of the chair rows if you didn't bring a Bible this morning. Um, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one for you. Um, we will get any Bible you want. So if you don't have a Bible of your own that, that you are happy with, talk to me or one of the leaders after service. We'd be love to invest in that for you. So we're going to pick up in, in verse 2 of chapter 9. And I'm just going to read through here, and then we'll talk through it. And we're going to cover quite a bit of Scripture today, but there's plenty of time to do what we need to do. So we're going to just kind of Trust the Lord with that. Here we go. In verse 2, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him, before them, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were terrified. When a cloud appeared and enveloped them, a voice came from the cloud that said, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what this, quote, rising from the dead, unquote, meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything that they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all of the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. And what are you arguing with him about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the, to the ground. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? And the boy's father said, since childhood. It has even thrown him into the fire and the water, trying to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus replied, if you can. 
Everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was coming to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed, and violently came out of the boy. The boy looked so much like a corpse that people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and the boy stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we come into your house today to ultimately encounter you and ultimately worship you and ultimately experience you. We have our, our fill in this world of the world and, and we, we sense that you are with us in the world and yet we want more of you. In this time now of the teaching of your word, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit to instruct us in our souls. We indeed ask that you would write the words in our heart that you would shape our mind to be more like yours, that we'd be transformed. And Father, we pray that, that all of us would come away with a deeper understanding of who you are and who we are in this world and, and what you're inviting us to do. I pray, Father, that the words that um, are said today are not my words, and where they are, they'd be, they'd be ceased, that they'd be your words for your people, and only you can do it, and that's our good confession, that only you can speak to our hearts and lives in a meaningful way that might change us. We, we depend upon you for it, but we also trust you for it. May you make much of yourself today as your people um, hear your word together. We love you so much, and we thank you for the opportunity to worship you through this. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have this literal mountaintop experience. After this confession of Christ and after this invitation to go and suffer with Jesus, we have this mountaintop experience, and, and I want to walk slowly through parts of this text and parts that we're going to kind of go quickly through, but, but I just want to literally look at the word, and by the way, I've said this to you all before, but I'm super serious, just look at the word and what the word says. The first thing that I notice in this is it says, after six days, so six days later, after this moment with Peter in the confession and him saying, you know, it's going to cost you something to follow me, after that six days later, he takes these three guys, and I, I have to ask, I'm like, well, why six days? What's unique about six days? And I wish I could say I prayed, meditated, and God's like, hey, here's what's, I don't know what's unique about six days, but why write that down? That has to matter. Maybe you know. Maybe you're here today. You go, I know why it's six days. I'd love to hear that. I know six days is a week. There's probably something, I mean, there's something going on, right? I look for a date. Yeah, I'd love to know. But six days later, though, I do know this. Jesus takes three, Peter, James, and John. You see it in verse two, with him, and he leads them up the high mountain. I just want to talk a minute about something that gets real serious here for Jesus and his disciple making. We, we've talked about how there's crowds of people and you can get big crowds of people that have big rallies and celebrations, right? And then you might even have a few people who are true supporters, right? They're your inner circle. They're really with you. They're going to have your back when people are talking about you when you're not around. And there, there's a group like that, right, to continue to follow but in this, in, even in the intimate group of people who are really with you, I want to notice here that Jesus takes these three with him. James, uh, John, and... Uh, why would I forget that? James... Uh, who? Thank you. Well, that's what messed me up. Peter's always first. Peter, James, and John. The brothers of thunder, right? They get to go with Jesus up the mountain. Uh, I just want to say, like, I mean, there's something about the way he makes disciples that, that is immediately um, a different and, and intimate in that way. 
Um, he invites them to go with him up the mountain. I've said to you before, and I don't know how you feel about this, but um, we see some great examples of what it means to follow Jesus, and it's kind of like this. Who will go with me? Well, I'll go. Like, that's about all it seems that's required of a true follower of Jesus to do something meaningful with our lives. As Jesus says, I'm going to go. And you say, I'll go with you there. I will follow you there. I'll, I'll, I'll be led to not to say we're all invited, right? Because he invites three here. So I just want to make a point to say that there's these huge crowds, there's this intimate gathering, but then he selects a few people. As a matter of fact, it kind of reminds me of my, our stool a little bit, not to keep talking about this, but it kind of reminds me of our stool a little bit that, that there's this big crowd and there's these small group studies, there's individual meditation, and, but I would say it almost fits more here. And I called it counseling that week, but it's kind of like discipleship. Matter of fact, uh, last year we had a, an initiative here called Disciple One. Where we encourage people to get together one in one and disciple one another in Christ using Scripture and, and just some standard accountability questions. What's God doing in your life? I don't have a great report that it really worked out that well. It was really hard for people to do that together. That's what we heard. It was really um, difficult. But here I want you to see that that same behavior, that same model is given by Jesus. He doesn't invite the whole crowd to follow him up the mountain. He doesn't invite all the disciples to follow him up the mountain. He picks three. He says, go with me. Matter, matter of fact, um, isn't it funny? These are the three that we call saints. You say, well, there's more. I, I know, but these are the three that people know. But Jesus invites them to come up with him. I still think there's value in that, by the way, even though it didn't work here last year particularly well. I mean, there's still value in finding your intimate group to follow Jesus with, to be serious with somebody about it, to, to, to reveal what's going on in your life to someone, and you can't do it with everyone. So he invites them up to this place. I love that it says that they go up the mountain to this, um, this high mountain, and uh, it's, it's like doubling down. It's, it's, first of all, it's a mountain, so it's not like all the area around it, but it's even a high mountain. It's a special place. I couldn't help, because we know it's coming, I've already read it, but I couldn't help but think, Jesus has been doing this for a minute, right? Like he's been escaping by himself to go up the mountain to pray. That's what we hear. The, 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 the good testimony is that, that Jesus went up the mountain to pray. But then here he says, hey, you guys come with me up the mountain. I think that's interesting and probably significant as well. Inviting them into this intimate space where he communes with God in a unique way, something that is meaningful to Jesus. I don't, by the way, think it's a mountain particularly. I know there's always this ascending idea of, of value. I get that. But I don't know that you have to go up a mountain to experience God in that way. It, it's about, but it's about getting that time, isn't it? Um, doing something different, breaking the routine to listen to God to hear from God. Well, Jesus invites them into this space as disciples, right? He picked three disciples to go up with him up on the mountain. Check it out, where they were all alone. See, it's, it's like something about breaking out of the ordinary experiences. There was some intimacy here. There's some quietness here. And then immediately in the middle of that, I would almost say in an unexpected way, if you listen to the text, it's like they did not see this coming. <laughs> like literally, they didn't come see this coming. It says that there he was transfigured before them, transfigured in their presence. He was changed. And I want to make a great point of this today because I know it's in there. It's the only time that we see this happening, but it's, it, it is completely different than what they see from Jesus all the time. Jesus is somehow revealing himself in a unique way or being revealed in a unique way in that moment, in that mountaintop intimate experience for these three. They see it. The word here actually means to metamorphosize. You know, metamorphosis, to change. 
It's not a trick. It's not a parlor trick. It's not a smoke and mirrors thing. He's changed in, before them, and their eyes get to see his change. The scripture goes on to explain the change, but, but first I want you to see that he, Jesus himself, is changed in some way because the next thing it says in verse 3 is his clothes became different. And I want to make it a point that it's not just that he was transfigured because his clothes looked amazing for a moment, right? This isn't a, an amazing changing room for Jesus. He actually reveals something of his, of his ultimate character, metamorphosized. He, he's literally changed before them to give us a little bit of a grip on this. This is the same word, by the way, that's used in Romans 12, chapter, or 12, chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, Be no longer conformed to the patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed. He's, he's not asking for an outward dressing, but an inward modif modification. That, that something ultimately true about us would come out because of our connection with God. And so what the disciples get to witness firsthand is something ultimately true, listen, ultimately true about Jesus that they get to see. Isn't that cool? Don't miss it. Peter says, you're the Christ. Then he's invited up the mountain to see Jesus differently. Wow. Well, it does go on to say that his clothes become um, white and shining, gleaming. The, the word uh, can't, you know, it's really funny because it's like adjectives and adjectives all about his clothes. You might think, well, they were gleaming white, you know, like the whitest whites. You see the commercial on TV. The scripture literally says no launderer can get clothes like this, <laughs> you know. Like lest you think this is like they got some really good OxyClean back in the, that something happened. Like, wow, Jesus isn't dirty anymore. Like that's not what's taught. It's the words like glinting in your eyes. It's like when there's other uses in Greek at the time where it captures the idea of like an armor that's just shimmering in the light. It's, spectacle. it's a spectacle, right? It's spectacular. It's, it, you're, you're overwhelmed with what you're seeing. It's not normal clothes. Don't miss it. It's not that he had the whitest whites. His clothes begin to shimmer and shine. His glory, and you must see this, right? His glory begins to be revealed even now, even here, even with these people. You can't, you can't read it in all of Scripture without beginning to see the foreshadowing of this Jesus who is ultimate. We, we hear that same testimony in Revelation, isn't it? From who? John, isn't it? Where Jesus comes in his glory. Listen, in his splendor. Too often we, we relegate Jesus to this um, broken, poor, uh, dirty servant. And he was. But he's glorious. Don't, don't, be, don't be tricked or deceived. This is no ordinary peasant. No ordinary man. And here we see this. His garments begin to flicker. Can you imagine with me for a moment? See, we read that and we go, yeah, I know, transfigured, I get it. They went the mountain. Ooh, it was cool. No, can you imagine? As a matter of fact, what's the words say? Peter starts to talk. Peter loves to do this. <laughs> I, I get Peter. <laughs> I know what to say. Say something. <laughs> he starts to just run off the mouth, right? We're going to talk about that. But it, it says that they were terrified. They were afraid. Who is this Jesus? 
You see, that's something that can happen in our lives. We begin to follow Jesus. We're like, yeah, I, I get Jesus. And we, we put Jesus in our back pocket. Jesus is safe. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in a way we do not expect. And we go, whoa. And we probably say something stupid in that moment. We don't know how to deal with it, right? Maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe you're smarter. You keep your silence. He's revealed to them in the moment. His clothes begin to shine. Check it out. Verse 4. And then there before him appeared Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. I mentioned this last week in the Easter message, right? That these two showed up to meet Jesus on the mountain. I, I think it's interesting because I would say that it says that they appeared. They appeared to who? <laughs> they appeared to Jesus. I mean, do we think this was a magic trick of, of Elijah and Moses to go, poof, here we are, Jesus, just like we said, right? Um, it seems to me when you're reading the text, they appeared to the disciples. You see, that, 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 I'm going to walk a line here, but it seems to me that it's not like Jesus was surprised they were there, and it's not like they appeared to him. They appeared to the disciples. Just like Jesus' transfiguration, they saw it. Oh, my gosh, look. And they're like, oh, my gosh, look. It's Elijah and Moses. What's going on? But they got to see it. See, they appeared to them. They appeared to the disciples. They began to see this holism of their faith. You understand this, right? Like these were a good Jewish people who had begun to follow this Messiah who taught differently and they claimed that he's the Messiah. And then poof, here, look at, look, we get to see Elijah and Moses. I want to talk for a minute about Elijah and Moses. Elijah's a prophet, right? Do you all know that? He's the prophet. He said, you have your, your gods, I have my God. You know, why don't we um, burn some wet wood together? Remember that guy? Called down. That's Elijah. He's a believer, but he's also a miracle worker. He's a prophet and a miracle worker, right? He does things that people can't explain. First guy shows up. Second guy that shows up is Moses. He's a prophet and a lawgiver, so you have the same consistency in prophecy being they're both the prophets are there seeing Jesus, but one is a miracle worker and one is a lawgiver. And I just want to kind of lay that in the background as we see Jesus being revealed. Who is this Christ and what does this mean? He's a miracle worker. Listen, he's a lawgiver. You've heard it said, but I say. Right? Being testified to. I already told you this last week, but I want to say it again. It's worth saying. It's fair to say Elijah and Moses were as stoked to be hanging out with Jesus as the disciples were, right? You can see this. You can go look at all the disciples, get to see all these uh, saints of history and stuff standing there. But listen, they're like, this is the Christ. Look at what the word says. They were talking to him. Hey, Jesus, what are you going to do? Hey, Jesus, what's going on? And like I said before, he's been going up the mountain to pray. So, I mean, I don't know how many encounters he's had. I'm just saying, do we know or not? We don't, right? But he, this isn't his first trip up the mountain to talk to the Lord, to talk to his father, to pray, to be alone. What do, you, what do you think? I mean, was it? I don't know. I would love to know, right? But was, was it Elijah and Moses going like, yeah! can't miss it. You think you wait a long time for Jesus to come? How long has Elijah been waiting or Moses been waiting? This is the one. Oh, I get to go meet Jesus on the mountain today. Glory. We get an image for this. I, I don't think I'm just being speculative. We get an image for this in a, in a minute here. Because check it out. They're talking to Jesus. I, it's so good. Peter says, you know what the word says? Peter answered. <laughs> Peter answered. <laughs> Who asked Peter a question? Nobody. <laughs> I, 
And this is what he says to Jesus. I just wanted you to get the picture. I want to get a literal picture here. You're Peter, James, and John. You're walking up the mountain behind Jesus. It's a real literal mountain. You're up, you're climbing, you're exhausted, you're sweaty. He's in front of you. And then all of a sudden, poof, in a moment, Jesus is different, his clothes are different, and bam, here's some prophets in front of you. You're overwhelmed, right? And, 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 and they're having a conversation that doesn't involve you. And Peter says in that moment, um, Jesus, it's good that we're here. <laughs> I just think that's the most ridiculous thing ever. It's like being, if you're with your CEO from your company, and you're meeting an international executive, the president of another nation, it's the most important person, you know. If you're with, some, if you're with your dad, and he's hanging out, he's going to meet his boss. I mean, if you're, if you're with, and you're in that moment, you're awkward, and you know what you just go, hey, it's like a little kid, right? It's good that we're here, right? I mean, you're almost like, I don't belong here. Um, can I sit in the hall and wait till this is over? I don't have the credentials to be here. But Peter's like, it's good that we're here. As a matter of fact, I have an idea. I'm going to build, a th let's build three tabernacles. One for each of you. Don't miss that. In this moment of being completely overwhelmed with the truth of Jesus, in this moment of being completely gobstruck about what's happening in front of him, Peter says, I know who Elijah is. I know who Moses is. I know who Jesus is. Let's build a tabernacle for each. Right? You might have heard tabernacle mean to be um, a, like a table or something. Maybe some confusion. Tabernacle means a tent. Tabernacle means a, a, literally, I mean, it means like a place to dwell and to worship. You remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament. They would move the tabernacle, and it's where God lived. And Peter says, let's build three. That's interesting. A, a few observations about this. Um, first, uh, Peter doesn't know what to say, so he says something. I'm not sure that's the greatest idea in the world. I'm just putting that out there. Second thing is that Peter sees all three of them as equal in this moment. Oh, look, it's Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. Let's all build them. Let's build them all tabernacles. There's so many allusions here to what happens in the Old Testament as well, by the way. When I want you to build me a house, I'll tell you, build me a house. That's what God says. You think I need a house? I'll let you know I need a house. You'll know. But the th third thing is that... Um, God does not see them as equal. Because look at what happens. Immediately upon saying this, a cloud appears and it encapsulates them. It envelops them. And a voice speaks from the cloud and says this, this is my son who I love. Listen to him. You see what happens there? It's kind of like they got like the big daddy smackdown. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I know what's going on. And he's like, you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Let me uh, block your sentences for a moment, freak you out a little more, and tell you something really important. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. This sounds very much like what? The baptism of Jesus, right? This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. This is not about making equal worship centers, uh, worship centers for all the saints. This is not about um, some new ritual you're going to have. This is about who Jesus is, and they are not equal. And listen to my son. Suddenly, they looked around, and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. That fast, it's over. The revelation's over. The mysticism is over. The experience is over. And they're rightly rebuked, corrected, I would say. So that's the first scene, up the mountain with Jesus. Now the second scene, 
down the mountain with Jesus, right? Y'all ready? Here we go. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the, the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the second time now that Jesus has talked about being raised from the dead. The first time was last week when he confessed, you're the Christ. And he says, I must um, suffer and die and be raised. This is now the second time that Jesus uh, literally um, says this. But the other thing I want you to see here is that Jesus affirms what they saw. He doesn't say like, they're, you know, he's saying, don't tell people what you just experienced here on the mountain with me. Not until I've been raised. That's when it's your job to go out and tell people what you've seen and known and, and experienced with me. There's this good timing for God. There's this, there's this desire. You'll know, you'll know that in other situations, Jesus has told people, don't tell people, and they've gone and told people anyway. We talk about that a lot in the Gospel of Mark. But here are his disciples, and he's like, hey, listen, don't say anything until after I've been raised from the dead. Look at what happens, the conversation. They began, it says they kept the matter to themselves, but they began discussing what this rising from the dead could mean. What does he mean, rising from the dead, Right? But they're at least obedient in that, which I appreciate. We've seen so much not being obedient in that way. So here, it confirms what they experienced. There's something unique, but he asks them to wait for the right moment to reveal it. Verse 11, and they asked him. Now, this is interesting. They begin to get in this kind of question and answer the way down the mountain. They're, they're like processing all the, why do the teachers of the law, that's the scribes, okay? We're going to come back to that in a minute. Say that Elijah must come first. That is before Messiah. So they're asking a law question now, coming down. Why do they say Elijah must come first before Messiah would come? And Jesus answered, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. See, Jesus is saying this has already happened. And they have done to him everything that they wish, just as it is written about him. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to make the we talked about the significance of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. Not only did he baptize Jesus, but he was imprisoned. Remember his followers sent, he sent his followers to say, are you the Messiah or waiting for another, right? Even though I, John had said, uh, John the Baptist had said, you're the Messiah. He then was so uncertain in prison, he sent his uh, entourage to go find out. And um, you remember that whenever John the Baptist was beheaded, Jesus' ministry like kicks into high gear. Like, so here when Jesus is saying, oh, Elijah has come, you say, well, wait, all righteousness will be restored? Is that what it says? Um, all things be made right? Where, where, where is it at here? To be sure Elijah must first come and restore all things. And I'm reading, I'm going, wait a minute, though. John the Baptist came, but, but all things weren't restored, right? But do you remember what he was preaching? Make straight the way of the Lord. Make level paths for him. Prepare yourself. Be baptized for remission of your sins because Messiah is coming. And then Jesus says this. But they did what they wanted to with John. You remember the king who took his head because of his adulterous relationship. You remember this, right? Wow. So Jesus is saying, Elijah has come. And they've done what they wanted to with Elijah. Just, and here it is words again, by the, just as is written. So continue down the mountain now. So he's got the teaching going. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around the disciples and teachers of the law arguing with the disciples or the disciples arguing with the teachers of the law. There's this argument going in the middle of a circle and the teachers of the law here are the scribes. The very same scribes of the disciples on the mountain were asking, hey, what, what does it mean when the scribes say Elijah must come first, right? These scribes now at the bottom of the mountain, like not literally the same people, but right, the same vein, the same thought, the law um, keepers, if you will, 
are, they're coming down the mountain and they see them arguing with the disciples. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they ran to him in wonder. I love that. Man, they just run to Jesus. But Jesus asked this question, what are you disputing amongst yourselves? What are you, what are you seeking together? It says, what are you arguing about, right? But I mean, he's just like looking at the whole crowd. It's easy to think he's taking sides here. It's easy to think what well, he's going, hey, my disciples are mine. They're always right. And you scribes are always wrong. And the crowd is going to be confused. But he actually asked the question of everyone, what are you disagreeing with yourselves about? What, what you know, drama has kicked up, wobbing up the mountain? Have you ever noticed, by the way, all the stuff that goes wonky when God goes up the mountain? You know what I'm saying? Have you ever noticed how, how much trouble humanity can get ourselves into whenever God is like not with us? <laughs> when, when the oracles of God aren't, 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 aren't present? I mean, you must get the sense of like, man, the minute the training wheels come off, the whole place falls apart. The minute you have no direct guidance in your life, the whole thing falls apart. We've seen this before too. But here he says, what are you discussing? What are you disagreeing with one another about? And check it out. A man from the crowd answers. I would fully expect in that moment a disciple would say, here's the problem, Jesus. If I was a disciple, I'd want to tell Jesus first what the problem was. Wouldn't you? If you're a Pharisee, you might want to confront Jesus first. But the question is asked in such a way that someone from the crowd just goes, I brought my son to you. I brought my child to you, Jesus. That's what they're disagreeing about. Do you see that? Some dude from the crowd just answers, teacher, rabbi, I brought my son to you. Don't miss that. And then we get the, the, the description of his son. He, he is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech, has made him mute, right? And then the father goes immediately into this list of problems because all he wants to do is get to Jesus. Like all he hopes to do is get to Jesus with his son. For him, this isn't like a theoretical debate. And we get a problem like this in church, right? We can get like the theoretical debates, philosophical debates, theological debates, and miss the point. That is about people who are desperate for a God-sized solution in their life. Do you see that here? They're having this disagreement amongst themselves about something the Father doesn't care. The scribes are probably going, this is what the law says. And the disciples are going, this is what Jesus would say. And nobody's there. And the Father's just going, I just need some help. Have you ever been that Father? I just need some help. I don't need your theories, your hypothesis. Oh, I need Jesus. I just need Jesus. I brought my son to you who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed them of speech. And he goes on to explain, and we read it before, but, you know, it has all these symptoms. And, and, and you know, we, here we are in our modern context, and we go, well, this sounds like um, epilepsy or something. This sounds like a disease. He should get some medication for that, right? The father says, this is about a spirit. This is about a spirit in his life. We've heard this morning from, about families that are hurting, and we, we can think, oh, this is, a, this is all solvable by human mechanisms, right? We can, we can solve this. This is just, no. I love that Amy came this. This is a spiritual issue. Remember what she said? How do you solve that problem? The knowledge of God. The knowledge of who you are. This is a spiritual problem. We're so convinced it's not the tra truth. It's not, the, it's not that way. So Jesus talks to him about it. He has this moment of exasperation. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long must I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Um, I mean, but then he immediately says, bring the boy. <laughs> you know, I love that about Jesus. Like, they're failing. 
the, by the way, not just the disciples, but the Pharisee, the, the scribes are failing. Everyone there is failing this boy. How long am I going to put up with you? Bring the boy to me, right? I want to say one more thing before I move past this. The, the, the word here says not, now listen, the word here says the disciples, it's not that the disciples don't have the ability, that's dunamis in Greek. They don't have the strength. There's a different word used there. When it says the disciples could not do it, right? I brought them and your disciples couldn't do this. It's in verse um, uh, 18b, if you will, right? Um, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. It does not mean they could not like I can't. It means they did not have the strength to do it. It was, it was doable, but they didn't have the strength for it. I think that's interesting because later on we're going to get back into this question of who can, right? But he says, um, bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. Now check it out. When the Spirit, and this is always the case, and we, we've talked about this before, but I want to say it one more time. You should not be surprised, and I should not be surprised, that when we bring the truth of God's Word into someone's life, that they would repel, that they would respond. If there is a spiritual battle in their lives, and there are spiritual battles in all of our lives, when we ingest the Word of God, when we encounter it in a real way, not in the safe Sunday school way, but in a real way of a living God, we, there's some part of us, that, that unclean part of us, that wants to push back from God. It's get away from me you know I mean you, you see this over and over again in scripture and here we see the same thing as soon as the spirits uh, see Jesus it says the boy immediately fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth it threw the boy into a convulsion the spirit did, immediately acted at the presence of Jesus and we should not be surprised church when we're in the middle of a battle in our own lives or the lives of others and we confront someone including ourselves with the truth of God that we would not like it and that the spirits would respond in a negative way and they do here but then look at Jesus he's almost like like a doctor you know you're going to a doctor and you got a big problem like I'm bleeding over a doc you know and the, the triage nurse is going um, what happened can't you just fix it? What happened? And Jesus begins to kind of take that tone here a little bit. He's like, how long has he been like this? Jesus doesn't seem overly concerned at this moment. The Spirit is thrashing uh, this boy's son on the ground. He's just like, how long has this been happening? He sounds very diagnostic, if you will. Um, a long time. Hmm? Um, since he was a child. Are there spiritual battles, listen, that happen? That there's spiritual battles in our lives that begin when we're children and have to be dealt with when we're adults. Are there spiritual, are there things that happen to us when we're, we're really young that screw up how we view the world and that we have to contend with the spiritual battles when we're adults? I think we see such a pattern of experience in this way. The, the man says, since he was a child, it's been like this. And then check it out. What is the ultimate goal of the spirit in the child? It was to throw him into the fire or water to, the father says, kill him. The ultimate goal of the spirit was to kill his son. Not to give him life, not to give him health, but to destroy him. And the father knew it. The ultimate desire of the, of the enemy of God is to destroy people, to destroy families, to kill them. Make no mistake, this is the battle that we're in. He says, he's trying to kill my son. But if you can do anything, take pity on him and, and help us. You know, he says, let your guts move for my son. If, if you can do anything. By the way, this done is not, if you have the strength to do it, Jesus. This done is, if you have the ability to do it, Jesus. That's what the Father says. Your disciples weren't strong enough, but if you can, 
if you have the ability to do this, would you, would you let your be moved, get sick about my son's situation? Would you do that if you can? And Jesus responds, if I can. Everything is possible for him who believes. Everything is possible for him who believes. And I ask a question when I read that. Who believes? In this moment, who believes that God can do something? See, many times we'll take that verse right there out of context. We'll say, well, anything's possible for those who believe. I believe, and so that it's possible, right? There's some truth to that. But I'd argue this. In that moment, Jesus is the only one believing that God can do something for the boy. The, the scribes don't believe it can be done. The disciples don't believe it can be done. The father doesn't believe it can be done. And in the moment when I read that question, I have to say, it's only Jesus that believes in the moment something can be done to stop the boy from dying, to stop the spirit. No one else who everything is possible for one, one who believes. And we do take that out of context sometimes. Because look at the, look at the, so this is the third movement here, if you will. So up the mountain with Jesus, down the mountain with Jesus, and now the miracle of faith, right? This is a miracle. You go, yeah, I, I know, I heard the end of the story. The boy is going to be exercised. <laughs> um, the boy is going to be saved. <laughs> that, that's the miracle. Listen, oh. the miracle is that the father believes. If I can. All things are possible for one who believes. And in the moment, this third movement happens, it says, immediately, as soon as Jesus says it, immediately, it's almost like a compulsory, the Father just just comes out, you know, and he, and he just, he says this, I believe, he proclaims it, I believe, help me with my unbelief. And I've, I've, that verse for me, man, when I read the Gospel Mark the first time, that was like, wow, I'm so glad it's in the Bible, right? But he's like, that's not help me. I believe, that, that's not like a passive, like, just make me not a doubter anymore, you know, help with my lack of faith, help me get my process right, help me understand. That's not like that. That's like this cry of a drowning man. We sang a song called Rescue, right? That means, that's that help. Help! <laughs> that, that's not a passive, theoretical, theological, philosophical help. If you get a time, can you come over here to this end of the pool? I'm having a hard time keeping up. That's, I'm about to go down. I believe help. The word means run to me. Oh, Jesus, would you run to me? All things are possible for those who believe. Jesus, would you run to me? I believe, would you run to me? The miracle is faith. Jesus sees the crowds running to the scene. He rebukes evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him. And listen to the word, never enter this child again. Come on church, that's crazy stuff. Get out and don't come back. Be gone. The spirit cried, shrieked, convulsed, and violently came out, right? We've all got imagery for that, but th that's the scenario. He looked so much like a corpse that many said that boy's dead. And Jesus killed them. The spirit killed them. Something killed them. They don't believe it. Jesus, man, look at this, 27. Jesus took him by the hand and he raised the boy to his feet and the boy stood up. He was restored. I just think uh, that's so much about our lives right there. A, we don't believe God can do anything about it. 
we've kind of got like a cynical faith that says, you know, I'll be safe. I won't ask for hard things. I won't believe hard things. And I won't need Jesus for hard things. That way I won't be disappointed by God, right? Jesus says, no, you believe. If you believe, help me. Help me. Maybe, maybe, you know, I mean, little kids saying that. God, just help me. Run to me. Help me to believe. And the Spirit is gone. He's driven out. Verse 28, Jesus went indoors. The disciples came and asked him in private, why couldn't we do that, Jesus? And he said, this kind can only come out by prayer. And does that mean that the disciples didn't pray enough? If you pray enough, you too can drive out demons. If you pray enough, you too can, can vanquish evil spirits. I would put to you today that when we pray, we are only doing what Jesus did. We're posturing ourselves the way Jesus himself postured himself in his life. He was spending time alone with God. He was listening to God. Listen, he was obeying God. What did God say? Listen to him. Do what he does. This is never about us having dunamis power apart from Jesus Christ. It's about us proclaiming the power that Jesus Christ has. And that might wear us out after a while to keep saying, Jesus can do it. But listen, Jesus can do it. Jesus can do it. I'm going to invite us to pray this morning, and I don't know what it is. And I, I mean, if you're, and we heard the confession this morning from Amy with us, but in our lives, and I know many of your lives, there are so many people that you think they just need Jesus. They just need Jesus. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me um, that, that that could happen, that, that God would make a way, that we would be conduits for people getting to Jesus, that we would not stand in the way arguing with lawmakers about what is and isn't right. We would just get people to Jesus, get them to faith. Do you believe everything is possible for those who believe? I know there's lots of questions. I would encourage you to maybe attend a family group this week to, if you want to discuss this further. Make time in your schedule. Get together with other believers and have hard conversations. I think it's worth it. And pray with me if you would. Father God, we've come into your house today, the house of prayer, to worship and celebrate you and who you are. We thank you for uh, the good confession of Scripture that shows us your great love for your people. We thank you for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, that we can't fully comprehend, really. And we thank you for the fact that you come to us to rescue us. And Lord, for all of our words and all of our theology and all of our theory, ultimately what we need is you to rescue us. You to rescue our friends. And right now I know this church, I know there's many, many concerns of people here who just need Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would... Um, make paths for them to come, that you would use us as conduits to share good news, that you would, that you would rebuke that cynical mind that would say it's too late for that when it's lost, all hope is lost, that we would renew afresh this morning the spirit that says it's not too late, it can be done because Jesus can do anything, that we would live by faith and not by sight. Father, would you um, compel us toward belief? And Father, for those who will come because of your faithfulness and your ability. We give you thanks and praise today. We want to be witnesses to your glory. May you make much of yourself as we come to you, and may your name be made great among all nations. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.